Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Ah, reimbursement. It's such a tricky, challenging topic. And I know some of you listening may be saying, what does reimbursement have to do with the things that Greenlight Guru is focused on? Well, to be quite honest, it has a lot to do because our part of our mission is to help improve the quality of life. And in doing so is is to provide you tools and information and content and just knowledge on how to be better prepared and more successful as medical device professionals. And if you are in any way, shape, or form involved in the design and development of a medical device, reimbursement is a topic that you need to have at least some knowledge and awareness about in order to be successful in the marketplace. It's a deep topic, but I'm encouraged that we got Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences joining this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. He has a lot of knowledge on uh, reimbursement and things CMS related. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Uh, joining me today is Mike Drews. Mike is with Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome to uh, a 2021 edition of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Happy New Year to you and to everybody in our audience. Absolutely. You know, it, it occurred to me recently that you know you and I spend have spent a fair amount of time talking about you know some of the the finer points and sometimes nuances of regulatory, and sometimes we dive into quality and. Somebody was asking me about reimbursement the other day, and you know, I, I know I'll say enough to be dangerous. I'm like, you know, I know somebody who knows a whole heck of a lot about reimbursement, and that's my good buddy Mike Drews. So, how about we talk a little bit about reimbursement today? That sounds like a great idea, John. Happy to be part of the discussion. As we usually do, probably a good place to start is maybe give some folks a little bit of context. What what do we mean when we talk about reimbursement? Great question, John. And let's start out with sort of a premise, and that is there's probably only one topic that is more boring for most people <laughs> to talk about than regulatory and quality, and that is reimbursement. Yeah. All right. But like regulatory, reimbursement does not have to be boring if we approach it properly. In other words, my attempt here is not to talk about reimbursement codes and, and other kinds of minutia like that. Quite frankly, that's not very important, especially for a non-reimbursement audience like ours is. On the contrary, if we focus on reimbursement strategy, kind of like regulatory strategy, in other words, why should non-reimbursement folks care about the topic of reimbursement? And one thing to start out our conversation, John, is that there's a tremendous impact of reimbursement on product development. We have a lot of folks in our audience that are involved in one aspect of medical device development or another. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize, John, is that reimbursement has a big impact on product development, specifically not just the devices that we have on the market today, but more importantly, the devices that we don't have on the market today and why we don't have them. In other words, I can off the top of my head, John, if I wanted to, I could probably give you a list of at least 10 or 12, probably more technologies that are clearly better than anything that we have today. And yet they're either not being developed very quickly or in some cases not being developed at all 
for a number of different reasons. One of them can be a lack of reimbursement. You know, it's interesting, John, in the United States, a lot of people think that we have the best medicine that money can buy. And it's simply not the case. We have the best medicine that money is willing to buy. And there's a, there's a big difference. Yeah. John, you and I have talked many times about why we have so many me too kind of medical devices on the market. And, and, And to be fair, we have a lot of me too drugs on the market as well. Well, the reason why, quite frankly, is twofold. One is, as we've talked about before, from a regulatory perspective, let's be honest, John, it's easier from a regulatory perspective to get a Me Too device through the FDA and onto the market than a truly newer novel device. And also from a reimbursement perspective, it's easier to fit into an existing reimbursement code than to work with the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to set up a new reimbursement code. So bottom line, John, and it I take no pride in, in saying this because it doesn't bode well for our industry and our, you know, in our society. We've created strong incentives, both regulatory incentives as well as reimbursement incentives, strong incentives for companies to develop me too kinds of devices. And at the same time, we've created strong disincentives for companies to develop anything truly new or novel. And I don't know about you, John, but to me, I find that a huge problem. Uh, yeah. I mean, Do you agree? I, I do agree it's a problem and and you know I, th- I think part of the the challenge I mean uh, man we, this could go deep uh, this could go long so we'll we'll try to stay on point and on topic but and I'm not trying to get political here I know um, we're not supposed to talk about politics amongst friends but you know I'm, I remember all the every year there's all this talk about healthcare reform et cetera et cetera et cetera you know there's so many layers between um, Technology, you know, medical device technology, pharmaceutical technology, whatever the case may be, and and the patient, it just drives me nuts, you know. And one of those layers it certainly is the reimbursement, but you're you're spot on. I mean, there's a there's a lot of demotivators or disincentives that are designed, I think, intentionally. Reimbursement might be one of those. I, I hope I'm not saying anything too uh, provocative here, but I know that you don't shy away from those things. <laughs> Definitely not too provocative for me, John. As a matter of fact, I think you're being quite tame, at least uh, thus far. Uh, just one or two other points to consider as we dig into this you know, further, because you're right, this is a very, very deep topic. Uh, another reason why reimbursement is so important to medical device developers is, let's face it, if you're working for a company, most people want to get paid. They want to get sal- a, a salary. You know, They want to yeah. get a paycheck at the end of the week. And in order to do that, you need to sell your products, you need to sell your medical devices. And most of the time, in order to sell them, you need reimbursement for it. Um, Although, interestingly enough, John, there are, just like in the regulatory world, there are exceptions to every rule. Some of my entrepreneurial friends specifically look for medical device markets where reimbursement is not an issue, where they do not have to worry about the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, who sets up the reimbursement codes and do not have to worry about insurance companies. Can you think of any medical device examples, John, where reimbursement would not be an issue? Uh, you, always, you managed to do I don't this mean to put me you sometime. on the spot. No, but it's okay. I'm, um, <laughs> well, I'm, I think, you know, if certainly some, I don't have a specific example, but something that's more direct to consumer, um, there may be some opportunities there, but even so, I mean, you know, like, uh, some even some direct to consumer things. I mean, there's insurance and all that sort of thing involved. Uh, um, you know, I was talking to to somebody the other day, and they went in for like a, a CT scan, and and the, it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm I hope I'm not dodging your direct question, but 
this person was asked, well, who's paying for it? Is it the insurance company? Well, if the insurance company, it's, you know, $499. If you're paying out of pocket cash, well, you know, it's $99. So I don't know if that's an example, but um, perhaps something along those lines, it's more direct to consumer. It could be an example, John. Uh, here's perhaps a better example. Medical device devices used for cosmetic indications. For example, a laser that's oh, indicated yeah. for the removal of a tattoo, right? There's not a snowball's chance here in Southern California that a CMS <laughs> or an insurance company is going to reimburse for a, a, a laser used to remove a tattoo. And quite frankly, they shouldn't. So from, uh, for the entrepreneurs in, in our audience, you know, there is uh, an interesting argument to be made if you can find uh, an area of medical device design and development where reimbursement is not an issue like the one that I just mentioned, then that could simplify quite a bit your go-to-market strategy. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, it totally does. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, why does this matter? And, you know, why does reimbursement matter to those listening? And I'll, I'll start with a short story and, and certainly get your uh, thoughts on this. But, I, you know, when I worked for a large company, we, we didn't give two thoughts in product development about reimbursement. And I suspect the reason why is because we had a whole department of people that worried about that. <laughs> um, you know, when, and, and then fast forward quite a few years later, when, when I was doing a lot of work with startups, you know, helping them bring products to market, they didn't have a whole department of people. In fact, you know, there's this, this uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, there's this perception that, well, CMS, FDA, they're both, or, you know, CDRH, they're, they're both branches of, 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 uh, federal government. They're both part of health and human services. Eh, they probably talk to each other uh, and so on and so forth. And John, you know a little bit about quality and a little bit about regulatory. Take care of that reimbursement. And I was like, deer in the headlights. Um, but if we didn't deal with it, uh, you know, granted, it was probably one of those Me Too type products where there was already established procedure codes and all that sort of thing. There was no incentive for the healthcare provider to use my product. Because they weren't going to get paid. So even if it was the the best thing since sliced bread, uh, you know, it is a payola system, unfortunately. Well, you're right, John. And of course, the next logical question to ask then is how early in the product development process should a medical device company begin to consider regulatory or in our case, you know, reimbursement? What would be your advice there, John? Well, um, I think it's good to know prior art. Um, you know whether you're developing a me too or, or something novel i think it's good to understand the the standard of care you know from a procedural standpoint i think it's good to get uh, information relatively early on in the development process as far as you know a finite day or moment and that's a little bit harder to come by but I, you know to me it seems like as you uh, understand what your your intended use and indications for use what you're targeting and, you know, maybe you're doing some early prototyping and, you know, user defining user needs and things of that nature, that that's probably a good time to start the process. What do you think? Well, I think that's a great start, John. Let me, uh, if you don't mind, take what you just said and, and, and add on uh, a little bit more. So just like regulatory strategy, I think we want to begin to think about reimbursement as early in the product development possible yeah. process as we possibly can literally from the point of prototype or even pre-prototype. Why? For a number of reasons. First of all, I see, I've seen it happen several times where medical device companies, including some of the largest medical device companies on earth, 
they've gotten a device through the FDA and onto the market, only to later come to find that people uh, can't or don't use them. Why? Because it's difficult or sometimes impossible to get reimbursement for it. And I think that, quite frankly, John, I don't mean to be unkind here. That's a laughable mistake. That's an, that's an amateur mistake. I just I just can't understand how that possibly happens. You know, you and I have talked before, John. If we're to, if let's say, for example, we have a class two medical device, we can design that device one way so that it's a five ten k. We can design the same device another way so that it's a, so that it's a de novo. Exactly the same thing applies to reimbursement. I can design a device to work one way such that it uh, easily fits into an existing reimbursement code. On the other hand, if I design it a different way, it might not fit into an existing reimbursement code. We might have to work with CMS to set up a new existing code, uh, a new reimbursement code, rather, which is quite frankly a, a pain in the neck. Another reason why um, it's uh, very, very important to begin to consider reimbursement early in the product development process is the amount of clinical data that we're going to need to get the product onto the market. You know, it's interesting. I hear people in our industry, they complain about the amount of clinical data that FDA may require as part of a submission for a 510K, a de novo, a PMA, what have you. Well, to the court of famous politician, I often say, I feel your pain. But um, when it comes to reimbursement, CMS often requires 10 times more clinical data uh, for reimbursement purposes than FDA would require for uh, for approval or clearance purposes. Ten times difference. Um, wow. and, uh, and, and then finally, the, the last reason why, uh, I shouldn't say the last, another reason why I think companies should uh, consider reimbursement as early into the product development process as possible is because of something I call competitive reimbursement strategy. You and I, John, have talked many times about what I call competitive regulatory strategy. Yeah. Well, competitive reimbursement strategy is exactly the same uh, idea. In other words, is it better, for example, to fit into an existing reimbursement code, which is clearly the, the path of least resistance, or alternatively to design your device such that a new reimbursement code is necessary to set up? And if the latter is true, if we need to set up a new reimbursement code, what can we do to, shall we say, design that reimbursement code such that our product can fit into it, but at the same time makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for our competitor's product to fit into it. So once again, for those in our audience who have heard us talk about competitive re regulatory strategy, the idea of competitive reimbursement strategy uh, is very, very similar. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, yeah, it's it's. Uh, the, I guess the regulatory corollary would be, you know, if you don't want to be a Me Too product, you know, explore other opportunities, whether that be, you know, you know, novel and unique and pursuing PMA or maybe even a de novo or something like that. So this sounds like that, you know, maybe a, a the the uh, the reimbursement complement to that, so to speak, which I guess sort of raises a question, though, um, is it possible? Uh, go with me for a moment. To or let me rephrase the question: If I have a, a competitive reimbursement strategy and approach that creates some novelty, so to speak, from a reimbursement perspective, does that have any ramifications on my regulatory strategy? Good question, John. Theoretically, no. Reimbursement and regulatory are independent of one another, but they are also interdependent on one another. So they're not. 
completely removed from one another. But usually, as a general rule, if you have a device that is going to require a new reimbursement code, it's probably going to be new and novel in the eyes of the FDA, meaning that it's probably, say, a de novo over a 510K. Is that always the case? No. The similar metaphor that I would use, John, is, is it possible to have a device that has a breakthrough designation, BDT, and yet we bring it onto the market as a 510K? Although it seems like an oxymoron to put 510K and (laughs) BDT in the same sentence, it can be done. But the general rule is they're usually different, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And and what if somebody's you know using a product off label? What's what's the impact from a reimbursement perspective? Yeah, great question. Or another way to phrase the same question, I think, John, is it is it possible to get reimbursed for a product when it's used off label? And the shorter answer is absolutely yes. In fact, it happens all the time, and the frequency that it's happening is actually increasing. You know, one of my many frustrations that I run into with a lot of my regulatory friends and a lot of my medical device friends in general is they think that what we teach in medical school is what's on the product's label. And from somebody who, you know, is, is, you know, from my background, John, I used to teach pathophysiology to, to, to medical students. I can tell you as a matter of certainty, we do not teach what in medical school, what is on the product's label, whether it's for a medical device or a drug, doesn't matter. What we teach is the standard of care. If the standard of care happens to be in agreement with what's on your label, then great. If the standard of care happens to be in disagreement with what's on your label, that's when life gets kind of interesting. Uh, I know this is obviously a medical device audience, John, but John, but let me use a, a, a drug metaphor as an example. Aspirin. We've known for decades that aspirin, um, because it's a weak anticoagulant as well as a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, it's very good at preventing heart attacks and ischemic strokes. And we've been teaching that in medical school for decades. Everybody knew that. But it wasn't up until maybe about eight or perhaps 10 years ago that it was actually added to the label. And so what we teach in medical school is the standard of care, not uh, what's on the product's label. And here's an interesting question for you, John. Uh, When a company sells a product, a medical device, or again, a drug for that matter, it doesn't matter. Are the dollars that are coming in from the sale of that product for off-label use somehow less green than the dollars coming in from on-label use? Obviously not, right? So simply put, CMS does reimburse for uh, off-label use frequently. I could give you litany of examples. Um, But let's take it a step further, John. And and as our audience knows, I work as a consultant for the FDA. I also work occasionally as a consultant for the CMS. And so this has led to some interesting discussions at at the CMS over the years. I've said, and nobody can dispute this, that CMS reimburses routinely for off-label use. What a lot of people don't realize is that in a small but growing number of cases, CMS is actually reimbursing for uses that are contraindicated on the FDA cleared or approved label. Contraindicated. So we have an interesting sort of a paradox, John. We have on one part of uh, under Health and Human Services, HHS, FDA says, don't use this product to do X. And then at the same time, a different group under HHS, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, says, oh, by the way, if you do use it for X, we're going to pay you for it. We're going to reimburse you for it. 
Interesting. I don't know about you, John, but it's one of the many interesting um, ironies, if not hypocrisies, in the in the <laughs> medical world when it comes to to health economics. Yeah, really interesting. And, and folks, uh, obviously, if you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast uh, for any length of time, good chance you've heard Mike, uh, Drews, and I talk about uh, competitive regulatory strategy. And you know, you've you've heard me talk about uh, if you need some help with that, you know, Mike is your guy. Clearly, he knows a lot about reimbursement as well, uh, and you know certainly. Uh, I'm guessing, Mike, you you work with a lot of folks on regulatory strategy, but you're probably in parallel working with them on their reimbursement strategy as well. Um, so I if, do, John. I don't market know. myself as a reimbursement consultant per se, but I have you know sort of, part of over the the years and decades I've been playing this game, you know, gotten dragged into reimbursement or kicking and screaming. But to be clear, <laughs> I'm not interested in designing the re- the reimbursement strategy for a company, and I certainly don't want to talk about reimbursement codes and the minutiae like that. That, yeah. that bores me to tears. But when it comes to integrating regulatory strategy and reimbursement strategy, that is something that I think is absolutely critical. Can I give you a quick example of what I mean, John? Yeah, for sure. So a, a couple of years ago, I was involved with a combination product. This was a drug, a device drug combination product, kind of like a drug drugging stent, if you will. And the company asked me to develop a regulatory strategy to bring this combination product through the FDA and onto the market. Well, this was a no-brainer for me, John. As you know, I do a lot of work with combo products. I made the case that the primary mode of action, the PMOA of this combination product was device. And therefore, CDRH would be the lead center and we would primarily bring it onto the market as a device. And the company said, okay, Mike, no problem. We understand that. Here's the dilemma. If we bring this product onto the market primarily as a medical device, which is clearly what we want to do from a regulatory perspective, we get reimbursed at a certain level. On the other hand, if we bring exactly the same product onto the market primarily as a drug, we get reimbursed at a higher level. Now, it shouldn't take an MBA after somebody's name to appreciate, John, that the company wants to get reimbursed at the higher level. So what they asked me to do is to re-engineer or to, 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 to tweak the regulatory strategy to meet the reimbursement strategy. In other words, flip from PMOA equals device to PMOA equals drug. It was very easy for me to do. The challenge was when we took this to the FDA, and again, this was a couple of years ago, but when we did finally take this to the FDA, would one of my FDA friends uh, recognize that's what I was doing and ask the question, hey, Mike, are you you know, changing your regulatory strategy to, to meet your reimbursement strategy? Well, my uh, prior to going into that meeting, I would have guessed that probably about 70 or 80% of the FDA reviewers in the room would not have a clue as to that's what I was doing. But maybe 10 or 20% of them might, and as a result, they might ask, ask that question. And one of my philosophies that I've developed over many years of playing this game, John, is you can't anticipate every problem or question, but you can anticipate many of them. So that was one of the questions that I anticipated. My trite response I didn't give this response because nobody, in fact, did ask, ask that question. But my trite response to that question was going to be, John, yes, Mr. or Mrs. FDA reviewer, that's exactly what I'm doing. And oh, by the way, please explain to me why that's any of your business. Because theoretically, John, you know, FDA is not supposed to be concerned about the money. That's CMS, right? But they could have asked that question. So that's a quick example. And I have lots of other examples where 
regulatory strategy and reimbursement strategy, along with product liability and you know intellectual property and everything else. All of these things have to be integrated. They all have to be connected, kind of like puzzle pieces. You cannot consider one without the other. And in some cases, John, like, for example, the, the case that I just shared, which is not a hypothetical, it's a real example. Uh, in some cases, uh, the, the reimbursement strategy is actually strong enough to flip the regulatory strategy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would, just before you started explaining that, I was like, oh, now I, I uh, Mike often talks about this as a game of poker, and I, I could see where reimbursement is is certainly an important aspect of that game of poker. Um, uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I guess I'm a little curious. I mean, you mentioned breakthrough device program a moment ago. Um, do you see that you know something that that might be a, a candidate for BDP that th- this provides some sort of reimbursement advantage? Yeah, great question, John. Uh, as someone in our audience uh, may remember, we've talked about the Breakthrough Devices Program or BDP several in, in, in several discussions. Um, there are some very significant non-regulatory advantages of getting BDP designation, and one of them is in terms of reimbursement. In other words, one of the things that uh, some people, including myself, you know, were, were saying when the BDP was first created was, what good is it to get a device through the FDA quickly and onto the market if it's a breakthrough device? If because it's a breakthrough, it doesn't fit into an existing reimbursement code, and therefore people can't get reimbursed for it, and therefore they're not going to use it. So what good is it? So what what uh, CMS did is they originally created a program where for a period of two years, and just last year it was expanded now to a period of four years, for any medical device that is approved with BDP designation, you essentially get what I'll call automatic reimbursement for those first four years. After that, you then have to go through CMS and you have to, you know, have the, the clinical data to, to show the, the not safety and efficacy because CMS doesn't care about safety and efficacy, but they, they want to know the cost benefit. So you get four years of automatic uh, reimbursement. So what does that mean, John? I've got now about nine devices that are currently in the BDP program at CDRH. Two or three of those devices uh, companies wanted BDP designation, not because of any FDA or regulatory benefits. As a matter of fact, to be candid, they could care less about the regulatory benefits of the BDP. What they were interested in is the non-regulatory benefits, like, for example, the automatic reimbursement that I just described. Uh, so bottom line, there are some very significant advantages to getting a BDP outside of the regulatory world. One of them certainly is reimbursement. Interesting. You know, I, I think you and I, I think this might have been what triggered the conversation about reimbursement today. I think it was one of the recent times you and I spoke. Um, I think we were talking about the CDRH 2021 priorities. And somewhere in there, we mentioned something about the, uh, I think it's a pilot program between CDRH and CMS on a parallel review. You know, what, what's curious to me is why that program hasn't been more popular. Do you have any thoughts as to why or why not? Yeah, it's interesting, uh, John. I think what you're referring to is what's now called the FDA CMS reimbursement pathway. Yeah. And it's interesting that you, like many people, uh, call this a pilot program. Well, it kind of depends on how you define pilot. I looked this up because I was actually uh, on this committee many years ago. This program was started in 2011. 
And now we're in 2021, a decade later, and you're asking the question that I've been asking for 10 years, and that is, why the heck is this taking so long? Uh, you know, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing to me. And I was on that committee for a while, and I finally got off that committee because I was just so frustrated. You know, maybe I shouldn't say this in a, in a, in a publicly recorded podcast like this, but I'm not running for politics, John, so what do I have to lose? <laughs> uh, you know, if we were in a race with a snail, the snail would have won. I mean, I hate to say it, but it was just, you know, painfully slow. And I'll give you a quick example. So as you know, John, uh, I've been involved with combination products uh, for, for more than 20 years. I was one of the first people uh, to be involved with the, the first struggling stents back in the day. And when you look at the first struggling stent, it's interesting from a reimbursement perspective because Cordis, a division of J&J, the first ones to bring the, the first struggling stent onto the market, realized that they faced a bit of a paradox. In other words, they could get the drug a living stent onto the market that is through the FDA. But if, as we said before, it doesn't fit into an existing reimbursement code, there's no drug living stent on the market yet. What code will you put it in uh, if people aren't going to use it? So what we did was, and this was a very controversial move within, within that particular company, is it, uh, before we even went for FDA approval, we went to get CMS approval. And long story short, it was the first time where two new reimbursement codes were set up prior to FDA approval of that product. The reason why that was controversial within that particular uh, company, John, is very simple because the company knew that it would be to their benefit to get the reimbursement code set up. But the company also knew that it would be equally to the benefit of their competition as well. Because then, you know, all the other drug loading stent companies can come in and piggyback on yeah. what the first company did. And, you know, so it's it's what I said earlier about um, competitive reimbursement strategy. Um, so it is taking a long time. And one other uh, example I would just quickly share, John, and then we can start to wrap this up, I think, is um, we really need to have a more formal mechanism, I think, to be able to communicate with CMS in advance, uh, kind of like a pre-sub meeting with, that we do with the FDA. We, we need a pre-sub with CMS, if you will. Uh, and, and here's why. Because I've been involved, and perhaps you have as well, John, with a handful of 510K devices. I would say at least four or five, maybe a few more off the top of my head, where I was 100% confident that I could get this through the FDA uh, as a 510K without any clinical data. I, I had absolutely doubt, no doubt in my mind. However, I also was equally confident that there was not a snowball's chance here in Southern California that we would get reimbursed, uh, we would get reimbursement from CMS without any clinical data. So in those cases, John, and I was among the first people to do this, and now there's a few other people that are doing it, so it's the beginning of a trend. Before going to the FDA, this is, you'll appreciate my poker metaphor, John, that you just alluded to a moment ago. Before we went to the FDA, we went to CMS and we came to an agreement as to what kind of clinical data that CMS is going to need for reimbursement. And then we went to the FDA. And before anybody in the FDA even opened their mouth and asked the question, we said, here's the clinical trial that we're going to do. Here's the number of patients. Here's the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Here's the endpoints and so on. I didn't tell my FDA friends that the reason why we're doing this clinical trial has nothing to do with you, FDA, John. It has everything to do with uh, your friends up the road at CMS. I didn't tell them that. That's none of their business. But what happened, I just gained a ton of brownie points 
because everybody in that room knew that I could have gotten the device through the FDA and onto the market without uh, the clinical data. Uh, and the reason why that's such an advantage, John, again, speaking in terms of uh, the poker game, is because one thing I've learned in, in being married is I will take brownie points for any reason that I can get them because sooner or later, yeah. I'm going to have to cash them in. Yeah. So when I say this is a poker game, I mean that in every sense of the word. So I hope those couple of examples um, are, are, are helpful or illustrative to, uh, to why reimbursement is so important in this game, not just to reimbursement professionals, but perhaps even more important to non-reimbursement professionals, whether they're um, engineers or uh, working in R&D or manufacturing, whether they're regulatory folks. I don't care, but everybody needs to know at least something like you and I are talking about today when it comes to reimbursement. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Any last um, moment tips and pointers that you think is important to leave the audience with today on, on the topic of reimbursement? And again, folks, we're we're just barely touching the surface of this topic. It's really deep. Um, so we just you know wanted to at least give you some heads up and a little bit of information that you can delve into this topic. But any other last minute tips and pointers for folks today? Well, it's just, you know, as we've talked about, as I've tried to illustrate that reimbursement like regulatory does not have to be boring if you approach it properly. It is very important for everybody to understand, especially for the engineers uh, in the audience, because it largely will explain uh, as I said at the beginning of our discussion today, John, not just the products, the medical devices that we have on the market, but the ones that we don't. And that, to me, is one of the most problematic things about this. In other words, the last example that I'll share with you, John, is, uh, you know, I work with a lot of small and startups that are in the process of raising money, and they talk to VCs or <laughs> angels. Can you guess, John, what the first two questions are that a typical professional investor would, would usually ask before writing a check? And I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with market size or even regulatory strategy. What do you think is the, uh, the first two questions that um, professional investors will ask before writing a check? Well, I, I can imagine one of those questions is something along the lines of, how long is it going to take before I make money? Uh, <laughs> recoup on your... Recoup on your investment. investment. Absolutely, but yeah. I, I yeah. can imagine well, another question would be... Um, you know, something along the lines of, uh, you know, what are the challenges to get to market or, or something along those lines? I, I don't know if I'm uh, in the right area code here, but but uh, what, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, good guess, John. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I do appreciate you being a good, good sport about it. In my experience, and I work with a lot of uh, VC and angel groups, typically the two most common questions that companies get first. One, do you have IP protection, intellectual property protection? And second, and relevant to our conversation today, is there an existing reimbursement pathway? Yeah. Is there is an existing reimbursement pathway? Why? Because it illustrates the simple fact that it is, as I said earlier in our discussion, much easier to fit into an existing reimbursement pathway than to work with the CMS, uh, which can take many, many years and, and countless amount of money to set up a new one. And the downside of that, John, is it's just another incentive for companies to bring out comp uh, products that we essentially already have or very, very yeah. similar to products that we already have. Now, the last thing that I'll say, John, and then we can wrap this up unless you have anything else. Just like regulation, you've heard me say many times, I refuse to use regulation or FDA as an excuse to hold me back. I think we have too many people doing that. 
similarly with reimbursement. I refuse to use reimbursement or the lack thereof as an excuse to hold me back because let's face it, if everybody worked only on devices that fit into an existing reimbursement pathway, then we would never have any newer novel device. We would essentially still be living in caves. So it can be done, but I also have to point out to the, the customers that I work with is that it is going to be um, uh, in the long run uh, more time consuming and sometimes more expensive, but it can actually make you more money in the future because one of the advantages of if you if you are going to take the path of more resistance uh, work to, to create a new reimbursement code or pathway, you might get a higher reimbursement. So in the short term, yeah. it might take you more money and take you more time to get reimbursement. But in the long term, you might make a ton more money because your because your reimbursement is that much higher. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I I don't know if I'm you know I'm trying to explain this as simply as I can in the short time that we have. Uh, these are complicated questions, John, and when it comes to regulatory strategy and when it comes to reimbursement strategy, and especially when it comes to integrating the two together, you really need somebody on your team that knows what the heck they're doing. And uh, sure. And, and, and anyway, go ahead. For sure. No, and I guess as you were describing that, I, yeah. I mean. Knowing that that the reimbursement process, if I'm trying to get a new code, can be years, uh, and you know it's possible that that time could be longer than it's going to take you to get your product cleared or approved via FDA. Uh, maybe not, depending on when you start. But it seems to me that this is again another parallel to what you and I have talked about from a regulatory perspective in the past. You know, maybe there's an opportunity to get, you know, from a regulatory perspective, get my product to market under a 510k for example, and then pursue a de novo or a PMA uh, in conjunction with kind of as follow-on submissions, it seems like there might be that same sort of opportunity from a reimbursement perspective too. Not only is there might be, John, there, there Should oftentimes be. is, yeah. and that's, I'm, I'm yeah. glad you, you brought that up because it is a strategy that, uh, that I've used many, many times. Uh, you know, using the regulatory as a metaphor, you know, you don't have, it's not a binary decision, 510K versus de novo or even PMA. You might be able to do some combination. Well, similarly with reimbursement, if you're in a small company or a startup where time to a short-term goal would probably be to design your device. And remember, when I talk about design here, I don't mean design just in the physical engineering sense. I'm talking about your, the labeling of your device as well, John. You design your device to fit into an existing reimbursement code. Why? Because it's quicker and, and, and easier uh, in the short term. But then you go back to, the C- to CMS later, maybe as a label expansion along with your FDA regulatory strategy to add a, a different indication or something that might include uh, or might necessitate a new reimbursement code, which is going to take you longer. But as I said a moment ago, can in the long term generate a heck of a lot more money. And in the meantime, you're selling the same product or a very similar product under a different reimbursement code. So you're generating money off of that. So so, so there are Smart. a lot of different ways that we can put these links of the chain together in uh, you know almost an infinite number of different sequences. Yeah, that's really smart. Mike, thank you so much for sharing some of your, your insights and wisdom on reimbursement. Super helpful. And, and folks listening, uh, as we mentioned toward the beginning of today's episode, start it early. Uh, if, if, certainly if you're in development and, and you haven't started to explore reimbursement, uh, not that you're too late, but you got some catch up to do. And if you need a little bit of help guiding this maze and, and you know next steps and strategy with respect to reimbursement, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences is your guy. So reach out to him. I'm sure he'd be happy to 
have a conversation to see if there might be some of uh, his tricks and tips and pointers. And I mean, this is, is all complimentary that he can provide to you to, to help you be more successful in your, your path to bring pro- exciting new products to market. I also want to remind you that uh, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help. No, we don't have a, a module for reimbursement, but we do have partners like Mike Drews, Vascular Sciences, and, and we do have the only medical device quality management system software in the world today designed specifically and exclusively for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. Uh, it's certainly something that's going to be important uh, in your journey uh, of medical device industry is you know design and development, risk management, document management, change management, CAPAS, complaints, all of those sorts of things. We, we have all of these workflows built together in a cohesive platform. So if you want to learn more about that, go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. We'd be thrilled to have a conversation with you to under, better understand your needs. And you know if you need connections to partners such as uh, Mike Drews and about reimbursement, we've got those folks we can make connections to as well. So reach out to us. We're happy to help. As always, thank you for being listeners of the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical device industry. And that's because of you. So keep spreading the word and sharing with your friends and family and colleagues. I don't know if family members are listening to it, but maybe. But keep spreading the word. Thank you so much. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.